Good morning. My name is Dustin. If you don't know me, I'd love a chance to meet you after service. Come and find me and say hello if you're new here, if we've never met. Uh, We're going to be continuing on in our series that we're calling Upside Down, in which we are reading through a sermon preached by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. If you guys are okay with it, we're just going to jump right into the text this morning. So we're picking up where we left off last week, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses and when you fast do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others truly I say to you they have received their reward but when you fast anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Does anyone else here love fake people? Fake people? Come on, just me? No one else likes people pretending to be something that they're not? No one else likes people being disingenuous all the time, putting on a show for you, telling you what they think you want to hear? No one else likes people who say that they're one thing and then act like something completely different. No one else likes that? Weird. Of course you don't. Nobody likes fake people. Being fake is probably one of the worst things you could be in life. I've heard people say, I'd rather people hate me for who I really am than to love me for someone that I'm not. There are a lot of ways we've verbalized this through the years They used to say of someone who was authentic and genuine, they used to say about them, that guy's the genuine article. I feel like you have to say that in an old-timey voice. That guy's the genuine article. That guy's the real McCoy. The real McCoy. When I was in high school, we'd say someone was legit. That girl's legit. Legitimate. Or keep it real. It was all about keeping it real. Kids today talk about keeping it 100. Keep it 100. And yes, I know I cannot pull that off even a little bit. 100% real. 100% authentic. I think no matter what era you grew up in, authenticity 
has always been a quality we greatly admire in people. Isn't it interesting then that the number one bone that people have to pick with Christians is that we are not authentic, that we're fake, that we preach one thing and we live another, that we talk about love but all we do is hate. And you know, I'd love to be offended by that, but they're not exactly wrong, are they? I mean, what do you see in America? What do you see in our own state? What do we see in our own lives? We see the spectacle of making Sunday morning this big thing, and then we see people getting together in churches and singing songs together and being all excited, and then we see Christians writing God first on their social media profiles, but then in so many ways we see no semblance of God in the lives of actual Christians. And it's not a unique problem in our society. In Jesus' day, the church had become this spectacle. In the passage we just read, Jesus mentions three things. He mentions giving, prayer, and fasting. And it's not coincidental because these three things were actually the most common outward expression of religion in the church at the time. The church would give to the poor, and they'd pray out in public, and then they would fast. They'd go days without eating, but the thing was, it was all just one big fake show. And Jesus goes after him about it. He, he, and, and the thing is, he doesn't call them out for doing these things. He wants you to do these things. He wants you to give and pray and fast. He's calling them out because of why they're doing these things. In this passage, Jesus is saying, you just want to look good. That's all you care about. You just want to be admired. You're just showing external displays of righteousness, but the thing is they're only skin deep and you don't even really know me. And the reason you don't know me is because you're more concerned with looking holy before people instead of actually being holy before God. And you can't live for two audiences. You can't seek the approval of God and the approval of man. And as long as you continue trying to do so, you will never actually know me because the thing about me is I don't play the skin deep game. I hit at the core. I hit at the heart. And I'm not offering you a new way to live. I'm offering you a new life completely. See, in this passage, Jesus is saying that he desires for his kingdom to be made up of people who are the real deal, not pretenders. Jesus wants his kingdom to be made up of people who feel no need to pretend or exaggerate or perform. This is Jesus directly telling his followers, listen, what I have to offer is far more than good enough to stand on its own. I don't need you to dress it up. I don't need you to make it look good because it is good. And Jesus is telling his followers in this sermon, he's saying, as we move forward, as my kingdom continues to invade this planet, the way we do things is going to look different. You're not going to have to pretend to be new. I am going to make you new. The power of the gospel is that it frees us to live authentically and intentionally. And in this passage, Jesus addressed these three things, giving, prayer, and fasting. And so I want to look at these three things this morning in light of that, and I want to start at the end. And so we're going to start in verse 16 where Jesus is talking about fasting, and he says this. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face 
that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The first way the gospel frees us to live authentically is that it allows us to experience real worship. Real worship. You see, fasting at its core is it's simply an act of worship. It's a practice that people use to help them focus on God. And essentially, you remove something out of your life. A lot of people use food, but you could use anything. You remove something out of your life, and then you fill that gap with time spent with God. But worship goes way deeper than just fasting. It's not fasting or, or just singing or serving or even spiritual disciplines. You see, worship is not something that you can force. Worship is rather a natural response to the revelation of who God is. Worship's not just being amazed by God, but rather it's allowing that amazement to infiltrate how you live. Someone who truly encounters Jesus will find themselves needing to worship, needing to respond in some kind of way because it's all too overwhelming and good. But in this passage, Jesus isn't even instructing his worshipers or his followers to worship him this is not about you need to worship in this he's talking about what's going on with the people and how they worship he's saying that he desires real and authentic worship he's saying that he doesn't want some external performance of worship you see these pharisees in jesus day they wouldn't eat for days when they would fast they wouldn't eat for days and then they'd walk around with these like pained agonizing faces of like, oh, I'm just so hungry because I'm so spiritual. And it was just this big show. They weren't actually worshiping. They weren't seeking after God. I think a modern example today might be someone posting that picture of their Bible and their morning coffee at 6 a.m., spending time with Jesus to make sure they know people, to, to make sure that people know, hey, I'm sacrificing sleep because of how much I love Jesus. Hey, when you see me later and I'm tired, you're going to know it's because I love Jesus. But Jesus says, you don't have to put on a show. You don't have to do that. I died so you could freely spend time with me, so you could experience me. And if you focus on me, your life will look different. You won't have to pretend. And the thing is, it is really easy to pretend to love God. It's easy. It's easy to pretend to worship. I remember when I first started at South Point years back, taking a group of students to the CIY conference that you guys have heard us talk about. And at this conference, they have these super loud and wild worship services every day. And on this trip, I had a student come to me, and they were discouraged because they saw all these other students with their hands raised, and they were sobbing, and they were screaming out, to God, and this particular student just couldn't find it within themselves to do those things. And I'm going to tell you what I told that student. Just because they're crying doesn't mean they're worshiping. And just because their hands are raised, that doesn't mean they know Jesus. And just because you aren't crying and your hands are in your pocket, well, that doesn't mean you don't know Jesus. The external display of worship is not the important thing. And the reason I know that is because I used to be those other kids. I'd go to conferences and I'd sing loud 
and I'd cry, and I'd raise my hands, and then when the weekend was over, I'd go back to whatever I was doing before. Go back to drinking or chasing after girls or fighting or treating people like they were less than I was, only ever thinking about myself. You see, it was only an outward expression. I, I worshiped God with my lips, but not with my life. And the prophet Isaiah, he calls this out in the Old Testament. He says, people honor me with their mouths. They sing songs for me, but their hearts are far from me. And let me tell you, as someone who has lived this way, that is a heartbreaking way to live. That is a shallow, empty existence as a Jesus follower. It is soul-crushing. And the thing is, in this passage, Jesus is saying, why would you ever want to live that way? Why would you ever want to put on a show when you, you can actually know me? And when I read this, I don't hear Jesus saying some heartless, hey, stop being fake with me. Instead, what I actually hear Jesus saying is filled with grace and bought with blood. He's saying, you can let your guard down with me. You're safe with me. You don't have to pretend. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a ringing gong or a clanging symbol. And so I want you guys to hear the invitation of Jesus. I don't need the show. I don't need all the crazy stuff. I just want your heart. I just want your heart. And if you let me have your heart, then you'll have an opportunity to experience my heart. And that's real worship. And then Jesus extends this to prayer in verse 5. So first we had worship and then we have prayer. It says this in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The second way the gospel frees us to live authentically is that it allows us to experience real prayer. Real prayer. I don't know if we have any Office fans in here, but when it comes to prayer, I think Kevin from The Office really says it best when he says this. He says, me think, why waste time say lot word when few word do trick? You know what God's not impressed by? And maybe you guys don't know this, but God's not impressed by our words. They don't do anything for him. They, they don't sway him. Our, our long-winded prayers, they don't do anything for God. And so you could have the most multifarious, variegated, capacious, convoluted, labyrinthine prayer life of anyone you know, and it'll be about as useful to you as that sentence just was. Just a bunch of hot air. You could pray in a way that people are really impressed by and drawn to and actually not be saying anything at all. And Jesus doesn't mince words here. He, lives, he leaves little to interpretation. He's saying if you're just talking to talk or you're just talking, especially if it's for other people to hear, you can just stop that right now. If you're out fighting for the right to pray publicly in schools around the flagpole so everyone can see your kids praying or see you praying and you're saying we have, 
to have this right to be able to pray, but you're never actually hitting your knees and praying at home. Jesus is saying, you got it backwards. Again, the outward performance of religion carries no meaning whatsoever in the eyes of God. You can be fooling everyone around you into thinking your relationship with God is thriving, but you can't fool God. He looks directly at the heart. He sees through the charade. Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer in this passage, and we could probably do an entire series on the Lord's Prayer and break it down line by line, if not word by word, into this intricate, complex meaning. But in actuality, the beauty and power of the Lord's Prayer is that it is magnificently simple. And honestly, you could take the Lord's Prayer and you could reduce it down to one phrase. You could reduce it down to the phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's Prayer in a nutshell. That's, that's really the Bible in a nutshell. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that things would be as God intended them to be. That's the Lord's Prayer. So when you pray, Jesus says to pray that things would be as God intended them to be. Pray that your life would be aligned with God's will, your will be done. Pray that your life would be dependent on God providing for you. Give us this day our daily bread. Pray that your life would extend grace and forgiveness to other people because it has received grace and forgiveness. Forgive us as we forgive others. And pray that your life is not tempted by the empty promises of this world, but stands steadfast in confidence that Jesus died to give you everything that you need. Lead us not into temptation. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, just as God intended it to be. And when you get these things right, everything else seems to flow out of that and fall into place and your prayer life will follow. And this is all in relation to the gospel. This is all possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. So you see, there's no sense in being long-winded and fake with the one who created you. I think most of us wear some type of mask and put on little performances for different audiences all day long. That's what Shakespeare said, right? Shakespeare said, all the world is a stage, and all men and women are merely players, just actors. That's all it is. That's what he says. You perform all day long for people. You perform at work, perform around your friends. In some ways, you have to perform with your family. When can you ever truly let your guard down? And if people really knew you, what would they think about you? It's exhausting to perform, and so let your prayer life be your escape from performing. Let your prayer life be moments where you are just completely yourself and you can take the mask off and just be yourself, all the mess, all the imperfections, with no agenda, no lists, just moments with Jesus. Man, I'm telling you guys, impossible obstacles, they start to feel pretty possible after moments with Jesus. Immovable mountains in your life, they start to suddenly feel pretty movable after moments with Jesus. And the thing is, he already knows you anyway. He knows your heart. He knows your desires. And you're never going to say anything that surprises him. You're never going to say anything that impresses him. And so I think knowing all these things, I think I might even press a little bit harder and challenge you that if you really don't know what to say when you talk to God or you don't really have anything to say, 
but you still want to try this prayer thing out, that maybe you just start out by not saying anything. Maybe you just quiet for a little bit. And then if you decide to pray, I challenge you to keep it simple and keep it short and keep it honest. God, today was brutal. I don't know what I'm going to do. But I know that you love me. I know that you're here with me. But I don't know if I believe that fully right now. I need your help to help me believe that, God. And I am really struggling. You say you offer peace and hope. I could really use some of it right now. And I don't really know what else to say, so I'm not going to say anything else. I'm just going to sit with you for a little bit, if that's all right. All I know is that I need you. Amen. And if you're curious, Dustin, do you really pray like that? Yeah, that's pretty much what my prayer life looks like. I don't know how other pastors pray, but I know for me, when I pray, that's pretty much all I got. I don't have time or energy or desire to perform. I don't know if you guys do. I don't. And now praying no longer stresses me out. Now praying actually alleviates my stress. And you have to remember who you're talking to with this. This isn't just anyone. This isn't your friend. This isn't a family member. This is the creator of the universe. This is the one who knows your heart. This is the one who died for you. And prayer is an opportunity at real communion with him. Real prayer. And then finally, Jesus turns our attention outward to those around us in verse 2. And he says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The final way that the gospel allows us to live authentically and intentionally is that it allows us to give real generosity. Real generosity. And, and for full clarity, this is not Jesus talking about giving money to the church here. So we're not going to pass the buckets in the middle of this point and ask you to give. It's not what Jesus is talking about. There is a place for giving to the church, but Jesus is talking specifically here about what you give and offer to people whose society throws away. What do you offer to people who have nothing to offer you? What do you give to people who there's nothing for it? There's nothing in you for spending time with them. Jesus is talking about sacrificial generosity. And sacrificial generosity means that you're giving something away. That giving to someone takes something away from you. And it could be money, but it could also be your time. It could be your energy. It could be your resources. It could be relationships that you really don't want to have, but you know that there's something there. Jesus points ahead later to judgment. And he says this about our generosity. He says this in Matthew 25. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a, sheep, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, I never really felt like I had a solid grasp on this passage growing up. I was always arguing back and forth with like, is this metaphorical? Does Jesus mean we're literally doing things for him if we're doing them for other people? Does that make everyone Jesus somehow? And no, it doesn't. It was just confusing to me. But then I had kids. Then I had kids, and I think it started to make a little more sense because, you see, you could do nice things for me, and you could serve me and love me, and I'd be grateful for it. But, man, if you love my kids and you pour into the lives of my kids, and if you make my kids feel valued and loved and seen, there is literally nothing more important that you could do for me. If you're loving them, even if you don't know me, you're loving me because my heart runs through my kids. And I believe this is what Jesus is talking about. And you see, not every human being is a child of God. I think people get confused about that. You're not a child of God until Jesus wipes your sins away and then you are clean and God sees you the way he sees his son and you're welcome into his family. But the thing is, regardless of whether someone is directly a child of God, every human being was made in God's image. Every human being was fearfully and wonderfully made and every human being is known and loved by God far beyond anything they could ever comprehend. And so for me, Jesus is saying, greatest way you could ever love me is to love those who I love. And not just like a Valentine's Day Hallmark kind of love, but to really go for it and fight for people and sacrifice for them and make them feel valued and loved and seen. Jesus says, give to them as if you're giving to me because my heart will run through those people. And what's so cool is, even though this is a passage that's looking ahead at Judgment Day, that this type of generosity is not about judgment or heaven or hell. It's not simply about serving others as a way to please God. It's not about trying to earn your way into heaven. All of this is still directly connected to the message of the gospel. It's still connected directly to the cross. It's about having received so much from Jesus that it just flows out of you all the time. And, and I love how Jesus says his followers will respond on Judgment Day when he tells them all the amazing ways in which they served. He says he's going to tell them all these amazing ways in which they served him, and he says they're going to respond by asking, when? When did we do all that, Lord? Almost as if to say, we weren't really keeping track. I guess we gave our time and money and energy so often that we don't remember a lot of the specifics because you just ingrained that type of love into who we were. It's not just something we do, it's something that we are, it's who you made us into. Can you imagine being generous so frequently that we can't even remember all the ways in which we were generous? Man, that's the kind of forgetfulness I want to aspire to. I forget a lot of things, 
I love to be generous so often that I can't remember all the times I was generous. You know, I'd almost guarantee that our lives are so full of sin that we can't begin to remember all the ways in which we've sinned. I'd almost guarantee that if someone were to point out a past mistake from years ago, you probably wouldn't remember it because we mess up so often. But what if instead, what if our lives were so full of love and generosity that we couldn't even begin to recall all the ways in which we loved people? I mean, could you imagine a woman recognizing you on the street and saying, excuse me, oh my gosh, it is you. I don't know if you remember me, but you tipped me $100 once when I was waiting on your table And you didn't even know, like, I was pregnant at the time, but that made such a huge impact on me, and I just wanted to say thank you so much. And you smile politely at her, but you're, like, racking your brain to remember this specific situation because you do that kind of thing all the time. Or imagine someone running up to you and saying, excuse me, oh my gosh, I I knew it was you. I don't know if you remember me, but I used to be homeless, and you actually took me to McDonald's for lunch once, and you listened to me, and then you talked to me about this Jesus, and I thought you were kind of crazy, but I just want you to know that I'm a believer now, and you have no idea what that meant for my life. And inside, you're trying to wreck your brain to remember this specific situation, but you've done that kind of thing so many times, it's hard to recall. Can you imagine a life lived this way, so generous, so loving, that it can't even remember all the ways? Can you imagine a community living this way? Man, I don't know about you guys, but I want to stand before Jesus someday and be able to say of my life, Jesus, I was blown away by you. I actually felt fulfilled and satisfied. I actually understood that everything already belongs to you anyway. My time, my money, my life, all of it's already yours, God. And I actually trusted that you were going to give me exactly what I needed when I needed it. And so I didn't have to live my life with these clenched fist and try to protect my wallet and my time because I wasn't afraid that I wouldn't have enough because I understood Jesus that as long as I have you, you are enough. And I'd so desperately wanted for other people to experience this relationship with you that I just started spending time with people and loving people and giving time to people and visiting and giving money to people. And I, I did all of it because I thought if I just loved them that they might catch a glimpse of you and that if they caught a glimpse of you, they'd be transformed forever. And I guess I was just doing it so often, I don't even remember doing a lot of it, but all the credit's yours, Jesus, because that's just the type of person you turned me into. And we didn't have to talk about all that stuff. You didn't have to bring it up. There's nothing I could ever do that would ever cover everything that you've done for me. I am good as long as I have you. Can you imagine being able to stand before Jesus and tell him that? Real worship, real prayer, real generosity. Jesus says, when it comes to things like this, the outward performance of religion carries no weight, but what's going on in your heart means everything. And so will we be a church that's the real deal? Because the thing is, not only does the outward performance of religion carry no meaning in the eyes of God, but it's also not going to do anything for your soul not going to do anything for your soul. I lived probably the first 15 years of my Christian life pretending that I had it all together when really I was falling apart most of the time. You know, I knew all the passages. I knew all the stories. I could pray out loud. I could lead 
discussions. I knew all the moves, but I didn't really know Jesus. Man, that's, that's hard to admit. But I thought if my outward performance of religion looked convincing enough that the people around me would never figure out how much I was actually struggling behind the scenes, struggling with hidden sin, struggling with my, my faith, struggling with feeling like a fake all the time. You see, this portion of the Sermon on the Mount was not simply written for Jesus to expose and go after the religious leaders of his day. It was also written for people like me who are in seasons like that. Jesus says, you don't have to pretend. Not in my kingdom. Not in my family. And so if you're struggling with depression and anxiety, and it is like crushing you, and you have no idea what to do, don't smile at me and tell me that everything is good, because it's not. And you don't have to pretend in this family. And if some sin has like a death grip, on your life and it's embarrassing and you just can't shake it no matter what you do and it's demoralizing and crushing you with guilt and shame, don't tell your home group that everything is fine. It's not. Man, I'm telling you guys, the enemy loves actors. Loves actors. And we are some amazing actors. It's funny how much we admire these people in Hollywood for playing dress-up and memorizing lines when in reality they're really just doing cheap impersonations of what you and I do every single day. Man, hide your brokenness, hide your doubt, hide your fear, hide your sin, hide your hurt, and just make sure you say all the right things when you're hanging out with church people and it'll be all right somehow. But will it? I'm not so sure. Church, Jesus doesn't just offer us Jesus doesn't just offer to make us clean and offer us freedom from the consequences of sin. He does offer that, but he also wants you to feel the freedom of his grace. Jesus wants you to not have to pretend anymore. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, you're no longer defined by all of those things. Your your failures, your mistakes, your struggles, that's not you anymore. When God looks at you, he doesn't see all that mess. He just sees the righteousness of his son. That's why the Bible says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is finished, and so your performance is useless. If you're a Christian, you don't have to pretend like life is great when it isn't. You don't have to pretend like you're happy when you're not. Because the thing is, this walk with Jesus is not about acting new, and it's not about looking new on the outside. It's about actually being made new in here. And that is a messy sequence of events. That's a messy process. So understand, you're under no obligation or instruction by Jesus or anywhere in the Bible to make it look good when it isn't good. You can be real. On the contrary, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It doesn't say my power is made perfect when you look good, when you act good, when everyone thinks that things are good in your life. He says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I'll boast, I'll brag, I'll talk about all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Man, I want the power of Christ to rest upon me. You are free to chase Jesus 
and chase him genuinely. You're free to put your mask on the shelf. And I know you're afraid by doing that you might ruin Jesus for someone. But I promise you, you're not going to ruin Jesus for someone by showing them you're not a perfect person. They already know. Instead, we should be letting our honesty and our transparency give the world an opportunity to see that Jesus is the real deal. We should give the world an opportunity to see that we're not spared from brokenness because of our commitment to him. We're not spared from those things. We experience brokenness. We experience hurt. We experience heartache. We're not spared from brokenness because of our commitment to him. But instead, we are carried through our brokenness because of his commitment to us. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so thankful that we can just be real. So thankful that we can be honest about the ways in which we're hurting and which we're struggling. We have to perform so much for so many different people. Try to meet expectations or exceed expectations or fit a certain image. And you don't ask for any of those things. You just say, come to me and be real. Pursue me honestly. Live your life honestly. And I will be there for you every single step of the way. You don't just invite us to do this. You actually died so we could live this kind of life with you. God, I pray for anyone in this place who is struggling with something that people don't know about, who is hurting deep down and feel like they have to hide and pretend. God, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit and the message of the gospel that we are free from the act. We can experience real, authentic transformation in our relationship with you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.